Hello, hello listeners, and welcome to Bloom and Gloom, a podcast where we talk all about the spooky and sinister side of plants. Firstly, I wanted to mention that we had some new listeners from Turkey, Belgium, the Faroe Islands, and Iceland this week, which is so awesome. So if that's you, then thank you, and you are so welcome with us. Now, into episode five. We're still in the Amazon this week, and I went deep down the rabbit hole on this one. Last episode, we discussed the mechanism of how the ayahuasca brew works in the human body and how this can positively and negatively influence the mental state. We also touched on how people might prepare themselves to undergo an ayahuasca ceremony, which can involve dieting and restricting certain behaviours. This week, we're going to cover something that I feel is largely unknown and unspoken about considering the popularity of the industry, and that is the dark side of ayahuasca tourism. It's uncommon for ayahuasca itself to be associated with violence, but nonetheless, altering human brain chemistry, especially in cases where it might already be vulnerable or unstable, can cause things to go horribly wrong. On the other side, when someone is psychologically incapacitated by the effects of a psychoactive substance, there are predators who see this as an opportunity for exploitation. Let's set the scene a little first. Over the last 30 years or so, information and praise about the benefits of ayahuasca has soared in popularity. Documentaries portraying Wall Street moguls turned environmentalists and articles about Silicon Valley millionaires re-evaluating their life's purpose have flooded the media. Lindsay Lohan famously proclaimed that it helped her reconcile some of her trauma, and Joe Rogan has had a number of guests and discussions on his podcast about it. As such, hundreds of thousands of ayahuasca tourists have begun to flock to South America. There are real concerns with how this influx of people and money is destabilizing small communities, especially in Peru. It's hard to determine how many centres there are, because only about 20 of them are licensed. However, there is thought to be at least another 100 operating off the books. One source reported that 10 of the biggest retreat centres in Peru brought in almost 10 million Australian dollars annually. Most of these centres are actually owned and run by foreigners, so the likelihood that the income they generate stays in Peru is actually quite low. Pre-COVID, Peru was seeing about 4.5 million tourists every year, a good proportion of whom would participate in an ayahuasca ceremony while in the country. Personally, I believe the majority of these people are genuinely seeking guidance or healing and respect the Indigenous culture as much as they know how. But there are also concerns about what has been dubbed the colonisation of ayahuasca. Because ayahuasca ceremonies for Indigenous people are viewed as a sacred ritual, the experience is geared towards things that are relevant to the people of that culture. For example... A participant may go in seeking healing for some kind of emotional turmoil, so they would approach the plants and have a genuine spiritual interaction with them, asking them for guidance and permission to use part of its body to heal themselves. They will also be seeking healing for the environment and often would be undertaking the ceremony with people close to them so that they may obtain the wisdom of the jungle that they live in. This will allow them to continue a symbiotic relationship with the jungle until their death. Well, actually, in fact, until after they die and their body becomes one with it. This is an incredibly different context and viewpoint to how a tourist would experience the ceremony, which often means shamans, known as ayahuasqueros, can't really guide a foreigner as well as they would be able to with a local. 
What happens then is the Iowa squarers adjust their practices to be more palatable and helpful for these tourists. As such, the concern here is that this is altering and damaging the native practices of the people, which of course is awful. I think we have to keep in mind though, there is some pretty good evidence that ayahuasca can be helpful for all kinds of people. However, it is not available to all kinds of people. In the Western world, it's very difficult to source and not to mention illegal. So if you were someone who was feeling the weight of trauma or illness and had the resources available to seek an answer through these practices, why would you not take that opportunity? One article phrased ayahuasca tourism as, quote, white Westerners appropriating spiritual practices from other cultures and commodifying them for their personal enlightenment and often for their personal gain. This article also referred to ayahuasca as the latest trendy tonic for white people problems. I definitely understand the concern and hurt of Indigenous people who feel their sacred practices are not being respected. And when it comes to the foreigners running the ayahuasca retreats, I totally understand. They are really damaging these communities in a disgusting way. I also think a little compassion is in order for what I'm sure is a good proportion of ayahuasca tourists who are hurting in one way or another and are seeking the possibility of relief. Another problem is that these ingenuine people are exhausting the supply of Banisteriopsis carpi, the ayahuasca vine, and harvesting it in unsustainable ways. Sometimes they might hack off a piece and just leave the rest to die. Often these are the pseudo-shamans who run the retreat centres, with little experience and limited ability to safely guide a person who is actively hallucinating. Also, the tourists to these types of centres are not usually appropriately vetted for mental illnesses and contraindicated medications, and this can be a recipe for disaster. The remote jungle city of Iquitos in Peru is the absolute epicentre of this tourist boom. It is the largest city in the world that is unreachable by road. You can only get there by a direct flight from Lima, which is the capital of Peru, or by boat down the Amazon River, which takes about four to five days. You can also go from the border of Colombia and Brazil, part of the way on horseback, and then the remainder by a speedboat, which that takes about 48 hours. But the point is, it's very remote and it's in the middle of the Amazon. It's also unfortunately been home to several murders, accusations of sexual assault, accidental poisonings and other crimes associated with the ayahuasca industry there. In 2015, a 29-year-old Canadian man named Joshua Stevens stabbed a 26-year-old British man called Eunaeus Gomez to death in self-defence during an ayahuasca ceremony. There's a really good article about this posted on Dazed called A Story of Drugs, Darkness and Death in the Amazon. This took place at an alternative health centre called Phoenix Ayahuasca, On their website, they comment on how the name of the centre is based on the legend of the phoenix that rises from the ashes, symbolising resurrection, regeneration, rebirth and immortality. This centre is owned by two Australians, which, as we've established, is definitely not great. There's footage of Josh speaking about the incident on CTV News, where you can tell he has been understandably very distressed by the whole ordeal. He comments that he really thought he was going to die when Eunaeus Gomez, his friend, charged him with a knife from the kitchen. His concern began when Gomez started screaming the word Yahweh, which in case anyone doesn't know is one of the Hebrew names used for God in the Bible. This obviously caused Joshua to go and see if Eunaeus was okay, at which point he started screaming at him. This actually makes my skin crawl. It's so sad, but also terrifying. You are Yahweh, you are Yahweh, and it's time to get your demons out, brother. It's time to get your demons out. Eunaeus then started strangling Joshua and pinned him to the floor by his hair. Okay, trigger warning here for sexual assault. Skip about 30 seconds if you don't want to hear this. Josh said it was as if he was possessed and had superhuman strength. 
He tried to restrain his friend but was unable to stop him from forcibly inserting his tongue into Josh's mouth while also reportedly touching the men's genitals and forcing a finger into his anus. Josh screamed for help and two Peruvian workers came to his aid with a concoction of salt, lemon and sugar, which is said to reduce the effects of ayahuasca. But Yunez threw the drink aside and began beating one of the workers. He then chased Josh into the kitchen, who had gone in there looking for a pan to knock his friend unconscious, thinking it was the only option. This is when Yunez grabbed the knife and began trying to stab Josh and the two other men in the room. Josh was defending himself with a pot which then broke, and in order to save his own life and those of the other people there, he stabbed his friend twice, which ultimately led to his death. It was later mentioned that Eunaeus had taken much more than the recommended amount of ayahuasca, while Josh was sober during this event. After this occurred, everyone else took off and left Josh Stevens with a dying Eunaeus Gomez for 45 minutes while Josh was screaming for help. I can't even imagine how traumatic and terrifying that would have been for Josh. I hope he has a really good therapist back in Canada. In the same year, and also in Iquitos, a 24-year-old New Zealander named Matthew Dawson Clark died during preparations for an ayahuasca ceremony after drinking what's called tobacco tea. The tobacco plant itself is definitely worthy of its own episode, but to explain very quickly, there are a number of toxins in tobacco, some from the plant's biology, like nicotine, and some from the environment they're usually grown in, like high levels of cadmium and heavy metals. The National Library of Medicine Archives of Toxicology categorised nicotine as an LD50, LD stands for lethal dose, and it's like a unit of measurement of toxicity. An LD50 means it only takes 6.5 milligrams per kilo of body weight to kill someone with nicotine, which makes it twice as deadly as arsenic. So Matt started to go downhill after drinking it and mentioned he felt like he'd been poisoned after taking the tea as part of a purging ritual. There was actually a firefighter who was also at the retreat looking to treat his PTSD from serving as a medic, and he was very concerned about Matt but was told repeatedly that he was fine, just going through a lot emotionally. Eventually, when Matt went into cardiac arrest, the retreat workers finally asked for Rich's help to administer CPR. They tried to transport him to the hospital, but the retreats are often a long way out of town and the roads are terrible. It was said that they got bogged and even had the vehicle tip over on the way into Iquitos. Either way, when they finally got there, it was too late and Matt had passed away. What's absolutely disgusting is the tour operator that Matthew was with when asked to provide a comment on the situation, said, quote, People die sometimes. Shit happens. To be so dismissive of someone's life is just appalling, and I think it's a pretty good example of where the priorities lie with these people. They don't give a shit about people who are looking for healing. They don't care if taking ayahuasca is not good for you. They don't care about the spiritual practices of the Indigenous people, the environment, or sustainability. All they care about is whether you're going to pay them their $3,000 to stay in the jungle. It's just total exploitation of everyone involved, and this is what I mean about the dark side of ayahuasca tourism. It's not well reported on, and it's just unbelievably corrupt and dangerous. In 2014, a 19-year-old man named Henry Miller died while on a gap year in Colombia after consuming yahe, which is another name for ayahuasca but typically has the same ingredients. It was thought that this batch of yahe could have contained something called toe, which is a plant that's a member of the Datura family. It's a hallucinogen, but its therapeutic index is relatively narrow. As they say, the dose makes the poison, and it doesn't take much to turn Toe from a dose to a poison. Another accidental death occurred in Iquitos when an 18-year-old named Kyle Nolan from the US was part of a guided ceremony involving a shaman named Jose Pineda Vargas. 
This shaman reported that Kyle took his bags and wandered off into the jungle without a word while on ayahuasca. When he didn't board his flight home, his family were immediately concerned and a couple of them flew to Peru to search for him. After some pressure from the Peruvian authorities, the shaman confessed that Kyle had died during the ceremony and he had buried his body on the outskirts of the property. What exactly occurred here has never been established. There are a number of other deaths involving ayahuasca, including the most well-known and widely covered case of the ayahuasca murders. But before we discuss that, I think it's important to note that deaths are relatively rare when compared to the endless reports of rape and sexual assault. Another trigger warning here, please, if you feel listening to this kind of content is harmful for you, respect your needs and skip ahead about five minutes. So there's obviously a power dynamic at play here between a shaman and the individual they're administering this medication to. They are expected to manage and guide the person's experience and are in total control while the person on this trip is often completely incapacitated. There is the point about suggestibility. This is the reason that someone who is heavily intoxicated with alcohol or other substances is not legally able to provide consent for sexual actions because they're considered incapable of making reasonable decisions and may consent to things they otherwise would not have if sober. Some people, especially those inexperienced with hallucinogens, can report feelings of immobilization when taking ayahuasca. Physically, this can manifest as an intense weakness or the inability to control one's body. And it's even been reported that shamans have manipulated people psychologically by guiding their visions to remove their will and power. One story is from a lady called Lily Ross, who commented on the feeling of physical incapacitation while a shaman professed his love for her and began sexually assaulting her. Over the following few days, the shaman continued to give her ayahuasca. She said, He could have told me to do anything, and like an automaton, I would have just done it. I would watch my body perform these things, and it was like I wasn't there to control it. Again in 2015, an anonymous open letter reporting the non-consensual sexual experiences at one ayahuasca retreat in Peru outlined the horrific and unsafe practices ranging from kissing and touching to forcible removal of clothing and much worse. Additionally, some people report visions or tactile sensations of a highly sexual nature while under the influence of the medicine, especially if it contains toei that we mentioned before, as this is known to have sedative effects as a calming agent and can drastically lower inhibition. This is an excerpt from chakruna.net. Another common scenario in reported attempts or instances of sexual abuse is that some healers might suggest to a participant that having sex with them is a form of healing or a way to gain spiritual power. In cases where women might agree to relations with shamans, they might be given a special position in an ayahuasca ceremonial space in an attempt to make them feel special or gifted, thus encouraging them to continue to engage in sexual relations. When sexual abuse happens along these lines, following such incidents, women are often confused and ashamed and feel unable to speak up often believing that they are limited in their ability to accuse or confront the shamans. Of course, this doesn't just happen to tourists, but there is a cultural gap when someone is in a different society. When a medicinal healer tells you to take your clothes off as part of a healing bath, you may not think of it as suspicious necessarily, where an Indigenous woman would know that that is not the norm. There is also a bit of a problem with the idea of a shaman or ayahuasquero being romanticised or even fetishised to some degree by Western culture where a native Peruvian is well aware that while these people might be deeply spiritual, they are certainly human. They're brothers and cousins, mothers, etc., and shamanism is just their job. 
It's not anywhere near as untouchable to the locals and therefore the power divide is not as wide. I want to mention a specific name of someone who has been accused of alleged sexual abuse in the ayahuasca tourism game in Iquitos. His name is Guillermo Aravalo, and he's been named in many sources. He allegedly has a bad reputation for this kind of conduct, and the reason I'm naming him is because he and his family are also involved in the case we're about to get into. This case is so sad. The whole thing just makes me sad. It's a highly unfortunate story, and it's known as the ayahuasca murders. It's been covered by the likes of My Favourite Murder, Last Podcast on the Left, and Mile Higher. I remember hearing the Mile Higher episode when it came out and thinking it was really detailed and well covered, so if you're after the full and complete rundown, I'd definitely recommend those guys. It begins with a Canadian man named Sebastian Woodruff, who by all accounts in his early life was a loved and interesting person, if a bit of a free spirit. He grew up on Vancouver Island in British Columbia, which is a small island just off the west coast of Canada, and was said to have loved being barefoot outdoors in nature. He foraged and, like many of us, had an interest in medicinal plants. He was popular despite being a little different and never liked the idea of having a nine-to-five job, although he always had regular work. His jobs included being a tree planter and a sea urchin diver, so he was very much the outdoorsman. In his adult life, Sebastian struggled with finding his purpose until a family member of his was struggling with addiction and this opened his eyes to what he believed was his calling, which was to work as an addiction counsellor. He believed that addiction did not come from the substance itself, but from unresolved family trauma. He also felt that Western medicine did very little to treat the source of these addictions and was therefore pretty much useless. So a note here, I have seen both sides of this. In my experience, it is much more common for addictions to be born out of trauma that more often than not involves the family. This is true. However, I've known a lot of people who've developed an addiction out of lack of purpose or fulfillment and even just from straight up boredom or by association because that's what the people around them were doing. So I see what he's saying, but if the addiction itself didn't provide some form of reward, it would not be addictive. In terms of the Western medicine point, it's the same as anywhere. You could be in Central Africa where they might use wet cupping to help with a migraine, or you could be in Australia where we might give you paracetamol and an antiemetic. The Australian method probably works better, but it's about what's available and what is culturally appropriate. So is the Western approach to mental health treatment the best that's available across the entire globe? Probably not. But is it any wonder that we haven't adopted a treatment from the Amazon jungle here or in Canada yet? Not really. As we all know, these systems move slowly and err on the side of caution when it's convenient for them. So Sebastian was very passionate about various indigenous cultures and medicinal practices, which eventually led him to try ayahuasca while in Canada. After this, he believed ayahuasca was the cure-all for mental illness and wanted to open a retreat in Peru to help people deal with their addictions and mental illnesses. He set up an Indiegogo, which I believe is like a GoFundMe for people to donate to, and that's what he's talking about in this following clip. This is from his YouTube channel called Sacred Circle. Hello, it's Sebastian. Um, yeah, I'm here today. I went out mushroom picking. <laughs> They're still growing. It's crazy. It's November 14th and uh, there's still little ones out there. There's still, there could be another whole other crop again. Um, that's not what I'm going to talk about. Um, yeah, I just, uh, with my, uh, you know, healing the addictions uh, page in my campaign on Indiegogo, I just wanted to share my day and just a little it's it's helpful to know and, and where I want I'm wanting to go with this whole thing is connection to nature and how 
your connection to nature uh, can heal. Um, you, you can heal yourself just through that. I'm going to play another clip of him talking to his son so you can get the vibe for Sebastian. We're out in the woods and we just found some medicine. And I'm just going to see, because uh, I know his mom teaches them lots too. What's this? Willow tree. No. Cottonwood? Yeah. And what can you do with it? <sighs> you can make nice smells or you can make perfume. Yup. And if you take the sticky bud and you squish it all up, if you put it on your cut, cuts, it helps heal it, doesn't it? Yeah. You want to squish one up? Do you have any cuts? Anyway, he managed to raise about 2000 Canadian dollars, and over the next three years, he made regular trips down to Iquitos to study medicinal healing. He participated in many ayahuasca ceremonies in both Peru and back home in Canada, and over this time, the people around him began to notice Sebastian's mental health declining. Part of his study was undertaken with a very famous and well-respected ayahuasquero named Guillermo Arevalo. He is the shaman we mentioned before with the sexual assault accusations. That he denies, by the way. So Sebastian's friends and family had noticed that he had started to become increasingly obsessive and intense about his goal to open up the treatment centre. He was also undertaking quite a strict dieta, which we discussed last episode involving a variety of restrictions like salt and many types of meat. There is actually a relationship between caloric restriction and psychosis. However, in cases like this, it's a chicken or the egg situation because while drastically reducing nutrition definitely harms the brain and can aggravate imbalances in brain chemistry, people who are psychologically unwell are also more likely to restrict their food intake because of psychosis. One famous example I can think of is Richard Chase, the Sacramento vampire. If you want to scar yourself for life, then look him up. But long story short, he had what was likely schizophrenia. And during an episode of psychosis, he would only really ingest raw meat and blood, both animal and human. We don't actually know if that's what was happening with Sebastian or not. Personally, I do suspect there was some level of psychosis involved here. He could have been genetically predisposed to something that was triggered through a combination of environmental factors like the dieta and the ayahuasca. While I think this is the most likely explanation for what eventually occurred, I want it to be clear that we actually have no idea and can only speculate. So as his mental health declined, Sebastian began posting increasingly concerning things on Facebook. These posts were often disjointed and discussed how he was feeling low or depressed. People also noticed that he had a temper and could be a bit volatile. It's not clear if this is something that emerged during this period or if he was always like that. In Vancouver, where he'd been attending ayahuasca ceremonies, he was no longer allowed to take the plant medicine and his family also asked him to seek professional help for his unravelling mental state. Then his long-term girlfriend left him, and all of this kind of caused him to go a bit broke. He started organising his own ceremonies, as well as more frequent trips to Peru, which he would initiate without the awareness of his family. Not long after this, down in Peru, people had also noticed Sebastian was unstable. He contacted his old work on the diving boat to ask for money, claiming his wallet and passport had been stolen, He'd been taking a number of prescription medications, and these included clonopin, which is known in Australia as clonazepam, which is a benzodiazepine. I'm assuming this was prescribed to Sebastian for anxiety or something like that. He was also taking sleeping pills and an antipsychotic medication called olanzapine. This is most commonly prescribed for bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. Sebastian also began efforts to source a firearm by asking various people and claiming he was planning a trek into the jungle, needing it for protection. He was, in fact, planning a visit to a jungle town called Victoria Gracia in search of an 81-year-old lady called Olivia Arevalo. 
Olivia was a loved and respected healer and was also the cousin of Guillermo Arvalo, who had recommended her to Sebastian on his quest for healing. Eventually, Sebastian did manage to procure a gun when he offered a local policeman an obscene amount of money for his 9mm pistol. This gun would eventually go on to take the life of the town's spiritual matriarch, Olivia Aravalo. He ended up going back and forth to Victoria Gracia and was somewhat menacing to the villagers who were pretty patient with him considering the situation. On more than one occasion, he arrived intoxicated and threatening, looking for one person or another, usually a man named Julian Aravalo, who was the son of Olivia. One theory is that Sebastian and Julian had entered into some kind of deal to open a healing centre, and it's possible that Julian Aravalo had not been genuine in this interaction, causing Sebastian to seek revenge. The reason for this theory is that the day before Sebastian killed Olivia, he showed up holding a sign in Spanish that said Julian owed him $4,000. The other possibility is that the whole thing was just a misunderstanding because Sebastian was mentally unwell and did not actually speak Spanish. But again, we don't actually know. He was also brandishing a bat or club at one point and had been reported to the police by locals a few times. In fact, he disturbed these poor villagers so much they began calling him a boogeyman and the Pelicara. This moniker to the Shipibo Kanibo tribe means face pillar, which has been used for white people in the Amazon because of human organ trafficking. Often the perpetrators are white Americans, so you can understand by giving him this name they must have really feared him. Now, a content warning for graphic violence for the next part. The day this occurred, Sebastian rode on a motorbike out to Julian's house, where he lived with Olivia. He was yelling out the front of the house when Julian stuck his head out the window, and Sebastian fired a single shot at him that missed. After hearing the commotion, a group of villagers were already coming out from their surrounding houses when Olivia emerged from the other direction. She was yelling at Sebastian, asking him what he was doing, and the villagers on the other side were closing in on him. This is when Sebastian Woodruff fired two shots into the chest of Olivia Aravalo. Her daughter came out from the house and held her mother as she cried, they're killing me, and passed away. So obviously this was witnessed by many people in the village who were completely heartbroken and angry that he had just murdered Olivia. She was known as a living ancestor. She was a keeper of knowledge for the Shipibo Kanibo people and one of the most revered members of their community. There is this history with gringos coming in and messing everything up, and with Sebastian specifically being frightening and threatening. These villagers are distraught and blind with rage, so they chase Sebastian. He tries to start the motorbike, but it's old and unreliable. It takes several tries, but finally ticks over and he speeds away from the locals who are all on foot. But as I mentioned earlier in the episode, the roads are notoriously terrible, and Sebastian hits a rut causing him to fly off his bike and into the slick Amazonian mud. The tribe of villagers then apprehended the dazed and disoriented gringo, who was dirty and bleeding. One man opened his backpack and removed the gun, while others held him down. Some villagers screamed to call the police, while others declared no one was to ring the authorities. They had reported Sebastian before, and nothing had been done about his behaviour. So they decided to take matters into their own hands and deliver Sebastian some jungle justice. One of the men begins filming on his phone as a chorus of accusation is hurled at Sebastian. Another man takes out an old seatbelt, fastening it around his neck. Sebastian pleads with the men, but they ignore his cries and begin to drag him through the dirt. Eventually, he stops struggling and lies face down in the mud when it is assumed he had passed away. The men buried Sebastian in a shallow grave that was later discovered by police, 
after this video was circulated on Facebook. The video is still online, but please do not watch it. Even stills of this footage are deeply disturbing. Those responsible for Sebastian's murder went into hiding after his body was discovered. His family and friends were completely shocked that Sebastian would have been capable of murdering Olivia Aravalo and didn't believe the village's version of events until forensics supported this story. So while I think the version of events is pretty clear, what led to them is a somewhat tragic mystery. It's not known if Sebastian was on ayahuasca at the time of this incident or not. However, both him and Olivia fell prey to the industry in some ways. Well, that was a kind of heavy episode, guys. If you made it this far, then thank you so much for listening. I do try to be as respectful as possible with the details of these cases, so I hope the information was well served. You can rate and review and follow us on Instagram and TikTok at bloomandgloompod, or you can flick me an email at bloomandgloompod at gmail.com. I'm sure you probably will after this, but anyway, have a gloomy day.